Over the past few decades, something rather curious has happened. Authoritarian regimes have ceded control, permitting political liberalisation, such as multi-party elections, formal institutions of participation, and greater transparency. Why is this? Uh, and how can we make sense of this sort of de jure change in legislation with authoritarian de facto control of the process? For despite ostensibly ceding control, many of these authoritarian regimes have maintained control in practice. So what's going on? To understand this quandary, I'm joined by Professor Joseph Wine from the University of Toronto. So tell me, Joseph, why do some authoritarian regimes cede control? Well, I think this, this is based on a project that I'm working on with uh, Professor Dan Slater at the University of Michigan. And one of the things that we actually try to make very clear in the argument uh, that we're writing up in a book, and it, it appeared in an article a few years ago, is that these authoritarian regimes aren't necessarily ceding control, right? And so the argument we make is that they're conceding democracy and therefore ushering in the possibility, no matter how improbable, but the possibility that that they may actually lose elections and therefore cede control. But the argument we make is actually quite di different from that. It's different from that, and in some ways it might even be a little more sinister, is that they're not, they're not ceding control, they're conceding democracy in order for them to continue to thrive, right? And so that's the, that's the kind of ironic twist here, is that to concede democracy is not to concede defeat. In fact, to concede democracy is to, is, is to, is to ensure their continuation of, of power. And so the argument basically is this, is that um, we think, and we've got evidence of this, that authoritarian regimes uh, are in some instances likely to concede democracy when they're really strong. Mm. Right? So the prevailing, I don't want to say the conventional wisdom, because of course, you know, theories of democratization have charted and documented various ways in which democracy can mm. appear. But as you know, in this day and age, we're, we're looking around for regimes that are about to collapse, right? Mm. So like the color revolutions, the Arab Spring, these are all examples of regimes that have become so thoroughly delegitimated, they collapse and out of the ashes rises democracy. That's mm. kind of how we think yeah. about these things, right? But there are actually quite a number of cases in which there is no collapse. There are no ashes from which a democracy arises, but rather there's an authoritarian regime that in many ways quite unexpectedly concedes democratic reform. Um, it's still very powerful. It's a party that is still in control of the economy. It's a party that sometimes still has very close links with the military. The economy is very strong and so on, right? So in other words, there's no collapse, there's no imminent Yeah, so why you know, do they crisis. do it? If they're strong, why do it? So the, the theory is basically that these parties are still strong. They have lots of confidence that if they were to concede democracy, they would win. Mm. Uh, and if they were to concede democracy, the country would still remain stable. In other words, transitioning during good times. But they also recognize that on the horizon, they're experiencing some challenges right. Right? and some incipient challenges. And so some of these may be electoral in nature, right? So one of the best examples is Taiwan. Mm. So in the mid-1980s, um, uh, the, an opposition party forms in 1986, the Demogra Democratic Progressive Party. And Taiwan at that time was still under martial law. And the ruling party, the KMT of the Kuomintang, um, you know, has outlawed opposition parties from forming. And yet, these opposition activists form this opposition party. 
And basically the whole world expects the KMT to repress. That's what authoritarian mm. regimes do, right? You, you, you experience some challenge mm. and you just repress. Mm. But what we see in Taiwan happening instead is actually the regime allowing the formation of the political party, this opposition party. And in fact, 1987, lifting martial law, introducing partial elections in 1989, and then full legislative elections in 1992. And so that's the puzzle, right? Like, why would the KMT yeah. concede democracy when just a few years earlier it was one of the most dastardly, brutal dictatorships and suddenly, you know, change of heart. And one of the things that we stress in our argument is that it's not the KMT suddenly has this awakening and they, you know, they, they have this enlightenment moment where they're suddenly <laughs> Democrats. Right. It's like, you know, there are these opposition challengers. They're not challenging us now. We're still in good shape now. Uh, if we were to concede democracy now and actually usher in freer and fairer mm -hmm. elections, that would not only regain us legitimacy, mm. but we'd win, mm. right? So it actually serves the interests of the party in terms of its political survival. And in the case of the KMT, they actually thrive mm. under democracy. Mm. So it serves the interests of the party to concede democracy. And so Dan Slater and I call this incentive compatible, right? It's, it's like you're an authoritarian regime. You have all of these stocks of power uh, at hand. You could repress. But it's also incentive compatible for you to actually start loosening the reins and conceding democracy. And so, so Taiwan is like the best example of this this kind of this kind of argument. Um, and we see this in other cases too, right? I mean, we we see this in South Korea, um, 1987 in June. Then uh, President the soon to be uh, President uh, No Tae Woo. Uh, in a very famous June speech, basically concedes democratic transition, right? And this is a regime that had, until then, you know, jailed all opposition activists and so on, uh, but concedes democratic transition. And we now know there's evidence to show that the reason why the regime concedes democracy is because they see on the horizon that people like Kim Yong-sam and Kim Dae-jung are really going to challenge them, right? And you know, this is as good of a time as ever for them to actually concede democracy because, and their hope was that the opposition would split the vote, and indeed that's what happens. And so the ruling party is actually able to maintain, not dominance, but able to maintain... So I have a question. Rule. Empirically, how do you work, how do you ascertain that this is what's going on in the minds of these rulers? That's a great question. I mean, we can't know what's going on in the minds mm. of these rulers, right? So we can't know... So Jiang Jingguo, for instance, was the president of Taiwan, during the transition, mm. we don't know what CCK was really thinking. I mean, mm. we can't get inside the heads mm. of dictators. Mm. Uh, we know what choices he made, though, mm. right? Um, we have some of his diaries. We have some of the diaries of those that were close to him. And, you know, we, we, and we, you can piece together the evidence there. And, you know, and, and there are... You know, CCK himself says, look, the times are changing, the environment But is it changing. specifically this point about the long-term horizon as opposed to an imminent threat? I think it's a recognition of an imminent threat, but also recognizing then to preserve the party over the long term and, and to preserve dominance over mm. the long term, it makes more sense to concede mm. democracy then and that, than And later. that's supported by large-scale quantity of evidence, right? That authoritarians that permit multi-party elections actually stay in party longer than single-party regimes. Yeah. Um, yeah, it depends on how you code this, but oh, okay. yeah, I mean, in general, it's, there's a surprisingly large number of authoritarian successor parties 
that not only survive but actually thrive. Yeah. And and the and the and the other part of our argument is basically to say, if you don't concede at that time when you're still strong, mm. and these challengers become more formidable challengers. Mm. Then you may miss your chance, right? Mm-hmm. And and we call that kind of like you you've hurtled through that sweet spot, or bittersweet spot, mm-hmm. as it as it were. Um, and then you really lose your chance. And that's when that's when these authoritarian regimes just kind of hang on, and they just repress, repress, repress until you know the regime finally collapses. Yeah. So this is something I'm curious about. Why? Do some Asian authoritarian regimes right. think, okay, we're going to thrive by doing strategy A, right. and others think, boom, let's yeah. repress? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, it, it, so there is a struggle within the, within the ruling party, and so, you know, in one way of thinking about it is that the, the more reform-oriented factions within the party win out in that mm-hmm. struggle, and they're able to but why? command the resources. Well, like, for instance, in the case of Taiwan, Jiang uh, Jing was able to sort of marshal together the political capital in order to move the KMT in that direction by starting to marginalize some of the some of the hardliner faction and so on. And soon thereafter, the president that succeeds him, Li Denghui, who is the leader of the KMT, really marginalizes the hardline faction and moves the party that way. I mean, sometimes you really see, sometimes it's just these the dictators just make mistakes so they, mm. they just don't see we know, don't the see sort of big structural drivers that are pushing for one structure yeah i mean other. i don't i don't i think it's 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 much more um contingent than okay. than than um i mean if it were just these big structural forces like once the size of the middle class exceeds yeah. a certain percentage mm. then it's time to concede mm. Mm. I don't think it's quite so okay. structural because okay. in the end it's human beings making mm. these decisions mm. right i mean this is one of the I think really important insights that that the book makes is that democracy doesn't just appear. Like people have to choose mm. uh, the democratic mm. route. They have to choose to make elections freer and fairer. It's mm. not like mm. you just go to bed one night in a dictatorship and the next morning mm. all the rules have changed. People have had to intentionally change them, and so so it really does rely on you know on humans making decisions, strategic mm-hmm. decisions, and in some cases. They mess up, like they totally, you know, they, they, they misinterpret the signals. Mm. The signals may not be that clear. They may be overconfident. Uh, they may be totally lacking in confidence, right? Mm. So, so you know, human error. Okay, but wait, let, 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 maybe if we can speak to some specific examples, like Singapore. Right. Like Singapore, what you, you might imagine that you'd thrive, you, you might imagine that you'd allow democracy and still thrive. Right, you right. Know. Yeah, I th- I th- we think so, the PAP is in a perfect spot. Um, it's, it's, it's what we call the bittersweet spot, right? Tell so, me more about this. So the bittersweet spot is where the party, uh, the regime still has a lot of power. It has a lot of what we call antecedent strengths. And it's got a you know, great sort of legacy of development. It's got control of the economy. It's performance got a lot of legitimacy, cred- performance right? Yeah. Legitimacy. It's got a lot of credibility. Um, and, and once you pass that apex of power, we say, we say that you've started entering into the bittersweet spot. It's bitter because um, this is a time where you concede uh, democracy, where you cede authoritarian mm. control. But it's sweet because it's probably your best shot at maintaining right, the confidence. confidence yeah, right? yeah. So that's the time where you're mm. where you're most confident. Um, that bittersweet spot is not um, is not indefinite, right? Mm. You can you can miss the bittersweet mm. spot. So, and that's the fear in Singapore is that if it if it doesn't 
um, make this concession during the bittersweet spot, it, it may it may miss that opportunity. In which case, then, frankly, if you're a rational dictator, your best option is actually to repress, mm. right, and just hang on for as mm. long as you possibly mm. can, or mm. try to negotiate your exit strategy so that you don't get thrown in jail or executed or whatever. I mean, that's that's when you start mm. thinking mm. that way. Um, but we see lots of examples of regimes missing the bittersweet spot, right? I mean. Think about it this way, like the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, um, they missed the bittersweet spot. By the time Perestroika and Glasnost happens, um, you know, for Gorbachev, it's this sudden realization like, wow, we've really missed, the, we've missed the spot. And the, and the regime basically, and the CPSU basically collapses. Like, so when I'm in China and the Chinese always say, oh, we've learned from the Soviet experience. And I say, well, what's the Soviet lesson? They say, well, we don't concede democracy because if you do that, everything collapses. And I say, no, that's the wrong lesson. The lesson you should learn is if you wait too long, you're in, bit, you're in deep trouble, right? And so you kinda, you, you've kind of you passed the best before date, and that's what the CPSU did. Our argument is if you're within the best before date and you're in that bittersweet spot and you've got and you're powerful and you have all these sources of confidence, democratize then. Because if you wait too long, you could be in real detail. Right, right, right. The pressure builds up and it gets too radical rather than staying yeah, in the confines right. of existing that's templates. Right. I mean, so the KMT concedes democracy in Taiwan and actually wins a legislative majority mm -hmm. for the next two decades, mm -hmm. right? It's not a... They didn't lose any power at all. Even when they lost the presidency, they still had a majority in the legislative event. So, you know, it, it, it's, there's a lot of continuity uh, in those instances. But again, sometimes people um, people make mistakes where they just don't perceive these signals. Okay, so we've spoken a little bit about Asian case studies. Do you yeah. think we can extrapolate that to other world regions or historical periods? Yeah, so that's interesting. I mean, I think when Dan and I started this, we would have said no, uh, because we really this bracket. This is Dan Slater, yeah. Dan Slater, yeah. And because we really bracket our cases around what we call developmental Asia, mm -hmm. right? And so um, these are developmental states. This is where you really see, you see modernization, you see industrialization and so on. And so we thought it was really just a subset of cases mm -hmm. that this kind of logic would make mm -hmm. the most sense. But we've since, for the purpose of our book, for instance, we're actually looking at post-war Japan, which is an unusual case, because most people think that, you know, that's not a third wave democratization. It doesn't fit the Taiwan, Korea, Indonesia mold. Um, and more recently, we've worked on a paper with a couple other colleagues, um, Daniel Ziblatt um, and Rachel Rydell. Daniel is a Europeanist and mm. Rachel is an Africanist. And we have found that actually, and just quite separately, we've all arrived at a very similar argument, this notion of authoritarian-led democratization, that you can actually have authoritarian regimes strategically conceding democracy uh, with the expectation that democracy actually serves their interests as opposed to run counter to their interests. And so, you know, the logic, and I, I can't speak mm -hmm. with, uh, with the, the level of depth or familiarity mm -hmm. as Daniel or Rachel would speak about their cases, but... There's a surprising parallel in 19th century England when the conservatives, small c conservatives, mm. um, really see democracy as serving their best interests as a way of actually maintaining um, the spoils of the economy and mm. also maintaining their political dominance, mm. ironically through democracy and through the extension of the franchise. And we see this in the case of Ghana, right, where you, you see... Uh, a state with actually with relatively low state capacity compared to places like 
Taiwan yeah. and Japan. But again, a similar logic like that. You know, if we concede now, we'll put we'll put ourselves in a much better position to continue to be electorally viable, if not dominant, than if we were to hang on and concede later. So the logic actually extends beyond just the East Asian or Southeast Asia cases that that Dan and Dan Slater and I initially explored. Okay, so here's a question: mm. If authoritarian regimes cede control, yeah. cede if authoritarian regimes cede democracy because right. they think they can thrive, right. what is the best strategy for pro-democracy reformists to do? Mm. So, like, if I'm a reformist in China. Is my best bet not to stir up a threat so that the Chinese Communist Party isn't threatened, right. so they think everything should be fine? Like, right. what should a democracy a activist great, do? Right, that's a great question because normally we're uh, we're talking to government officials and party leaders mm. and so on, and and basically trying to convince them that democracy is not you know does not spell the end of their regime or the mm. end of their political mm. lives. So um, we don't spend as much time speaking with activists, mm. right? Um, but I think the thing that is most important is for the authoritarian regime to receive clear signals that they have passed the apex of power, mm. and it's and it's really the clarity, or the unequivocalness, if that's a mm. word, unequivocalness mm. of the signal that's most important. When the signal becomes unclear uh, or obfuscated, then then authoritarian elites may make mistakes. So. I think it's important for opposition activists, and indeed the ones in China, I think, have always done a very, mm. have, have effectively mm. done this, mm. is to say, we oppose these parts of the regime, or we oppose these practices by the regime, but we're patriots, we love mm. our country, mm. we're not, we're not anti-China or anything mm. like that, mm. uh, and we're not necessarily anti-CCP, mm. we're just really tired of these particular practices. And uh, and these particular practices don't align with our own social, economic, mm. and political interests. And I think making that clear, so as to not be threatening the regime in the sense that, you know, unless you democratize or if you democratize, we're going to throw you out. And mm. and, and uh, yeah, this is yeah. something we see in the China and the Vietnam literature a lot. It's not necessarily threatening the regime, but you know, rightful resistance or yeah. highlighting problems That's that right. would incentivize reform. And we've seen that in China. So, for example, the... Like workers mobilizing. Yeah. yeah, and how elites might allow a degree of transparency or a degree of participation in order to solve local problems. Yeah. You know, they see that as an effective way of increasing bottom-up accountability yeah. at the margin, so to speak. Yeah, and I think that that's a strategy on the part of the regime. I mean, localizing dissent mm. and, then, and then trying to manage things and, mm. and sort of atomize or fragment mm. Mm. Um, collective action. That's a, it's a strategy mm. on the part of the ruling regime, but also, as you say, to increase or to enact some governance reforms, to increase some transparency and so on, so that people feel that they're more engaged in the political mm. system. And indeed, mm. when you're in China, right, I mean, you talk to people in China, they, they, they remind you, uh, rightly, that China, you know, the CCP of today is not the CCP of 50 years ago, right? I mean, it's a vastly different authoritarian regime, yeah. and it's a vastly different China. Mm. And, and, and so, you know, when you talk to uh, defenders of the regime, they'll say, look, there's, there's pretty much every freedom you can have in China. There are just a few that are red lines, and, and, uh, and, and we, don't, we don't allow anyone to cross mm. them. Um, so they have engaged in a lot of reforms. But the more you do that, 
the more people I think become demanding and 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 we see this in China mm-hmm. now for instance you know people mobilizing against uh, inequality or, or environment the environment um, and various other kinds mm-hmm. of social controls and so on um, and that could potentially be dangerous for the regime so again to go back to your question what what can opposition activists do I think it's to make very clear that there are practices that the regime are engaged in that they oppose mm. um, but that is not necessarily it, and does that party. does that does that tally with the historical data like for example looking at Taiwan or yeah. Japan is it that they were criticizing practices rather than the regime per se well I think I mean it's hard to disentangle yeah, right? sure. I mean there were clearer signals in the other places but the fact of the matter is is that the KMT democratizes and wins 75% of the vote mm. Right, and so even when you have ethnic mobilization, even when you have all of this kind of bottom-up mobilization mm. that would suggest to you that there's this groundswell of opposition mm. to the regime, the fact is is that the majority of the people actually still support the regime, support uh, or support the party insofar as the party helped deliver economic growth, so far as the party helped deliver stability and so on. Um, it's just that uh, they wanted the rules of the game change, mm. right? Um, and from the point of view of the KMT, that was a pretty low risk proposition. Fine. We'll but here's a the question. Rules. So we start so the original case study selection started from authoritarian Asia, yeah. all those countries with fantastic economic growth rates. Yeah. And I wonder whether our understanding of this is actually economic, uh, whether what's actually going on is massive economic growth rates, right. and that enables performance legitimacy. And when growth tanks, mm-hmm. actually people decide to repress. Yeah. And maybe that's, so for example, if I ju- I'm thinking of right now in Latin America, right. so with Ecuador, with Venezuela, Venezuela you know, well, after yeah. the commodity boom, right. pr- uh, it becomes harder to secure your power through performance legitimacy. Right. So you think, well, I'm not going to stay in office if I allow everyone the vote because the economy's tumbling. Right. Whereas if you're an authoritarian Asia and everything's going great, you know maybe it's more about economics than than well, politics the, these, and signals from activists. Yeah, these 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 econ- these polities mm. transition during good economic times. Mm. Right. So um, I think the one case in which uh, we saw a transition preceded by economic crisis was the. Asian financial crisis in Indonesia, right? And, and frankly, that's our weakest case, right? That's our boundary case. Like that is where we can still make the argument that the logic holds, um, but it's less decisive, it's less clear. It was higher risk for the Golkar regime than it was, say, for the KMT in Taiwan when it was still experiencing like eight percent growth mm. a year, right? So there is a lesson to be learned there in the sense that transitioning during good times is better for the regime and and once times get really bad mm. um, then then it becomes a higher risk proposition for the mm. regime and they actually might run the risk of losing um, and losing quite badly and so I think we're seeing that in a lot of regimes around the world and again going to the China question yeah. this is where we would say like to to our friends in China it's like this is a Great. Can you, if the CCP were to democratize right now, were to concede democracy and to introduce freer and fairer elections, is it is it in any way conceivable that the CCP would lose? It's mm. growing at six percent mm. a year. Mm. It's, it's brought hundreds of millions of people out of poverty and right. so on. There are a lot of problems, mm. but democracy gives you that kind of release valve, right? So you can that pressure release valve to to let some of that pressure off. Um, while at the same time um, maintaining electoral rules. So, 
you know, I, I just, for me, it just would be inconceivable that the regime, um, uh, at least by every measure we have and by our own observations of what's going on in China, it may be the case inside China that mm. they're much more nervous. Maybe they know mm -hmm. something that we don't know and that the regime or the party is actually not as popular mm -hmm. or not as legitimate as we might think from the mm. outside. Uh, in which case then, yeah, it probably does make sense for them to... But there is, like, my understanding of the data on trust is there's a huge trust in national government, though less yeah. trust in local. And, yeah. like, people, as you say, like, given the data on trust and how much performance legitimacy they have, you know, you would have thought they'd win. But here's a question. So your theory is about why a authoritarian regime may see democracy. Can it explain the converse? Can it explain why an authoritarian regime becomes more authoritarian, like we've seen in many parts of the world, yeah. in the Philippines, in, yeah. in China, et cetera, et cetera? Why does that mean that they are regressing because they're less confident of control? Right. right. Or is it, what's going on? Yeah, I mean, I think that, um, well, there's two ways of thinking about it. I mean, one is if you miss the bittersweet spot, and so, you know, the economy is doing less well, um, the legitimacy challenges um, uh, placed, at the, placed on the regime are becoming more strident, more mobilized, and so on. Um, at that point, you may have such little confidence that if you were to concede democracy that you have any chance of winning, never mind even surviving. Um, then you may choose to actually continue to repress it. May like in Venezuela, for example. Like in Venezuela, like in, like like where you see authoritarianism enduring. Um, so that so that the 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 notion that once you've hurdled, we call it it's hurdled through the bitter sweet spot. The rational thing actually is to repress. I mean, it's it's a horrible thing from mm. a normative point of view, but from the point of view, if 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 our if our logic hinges on the interests of the ruling regime. At that point, um, it's in your interest to not consider. So, in that in that sense, we'd expect if we were to look at quantitative data, we'd expect to see an increase in repression when there's an economic downturn, for example. Yeah, if the economic downturn is sustained and 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 the blame for the economic downturn is put uh, uh, to the regime, then that might be an option, and that's one of the reasons why in China we're not entirely convinced they've hurtled through that bittersweet spot because even though the economy has slowed um, it's still massively high it's still massively high and and you know and to the extent that there are have been softer parts of the economy it's not clear that the central the central CCP is being held is being held to blame for that yeah right? so so you know economic downturns in and of themselves are not necessarily indicative, I mm. think, or predictive. So this is where I'm struggling, because how can we explain, across the, the global rise in authoritarianism over yeah. the past six years, when, if I look at, if, if we look at the data of the countries that have, you know, worsened on the Freedom House Index yeah. or whatever, it's not like you'd say, oh, Alice, that, that country looks like it's going through some sort of threat, or it looks like it's having a challenging time, that's... Right. I, I'm just trying to because your your theory convinces me explaining why they might confidently yep. see democracy. Yeah. But I think if that theory works, it should also explain why you go backwards. Right. In terms of democratic backsliding. Yeah. 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 Exactly. So exactly. Yeah. I mean, that's we've started thinking a little bit about that in terms of again in in, in terms of our success cases. So it's probably not going to answer your question mm. entirely. I mean, w we see interestingly these these transitions in which the 
uh, incumbent regime initiates transition and that incumbent regime uh, continues to maintain, at least in the near term after transition, uh, continues to maintain power, um, that they actually can become a stabilizing force for democracy. So it's not because of the absence of that kind of disruption, mm. you actually see institutional continuity, you see stability, um, and also you see these once uh, former authoritarian parties actually become much more moderate economically mm, and politically mm. and so on. And so they actually don't become democratic spoilers. Um, so again, it, these are cases of successful, you know, examples mm. of, of, of strong state or strong party-led democratization. Um, I mean, the converse is that I think, in often, you know, what you, what you, when you see, so for instance, in the aftermath of the Arab Spring, mm. you have these collapse regimes um, and again, as I say, you know, the expectations from out of those ashes rise democracy, but they're not particularly well consolidated mm. democracies. The players themselves aren't well consolidated. There's very little continuity. There's a lot of instability. Mm, mm. Uh, and all of this is exacerbated by economic shocks and so on. And so that makes for um, uh, a situation that's more ripe for, for democratic backsliding. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that's important about our theory is that it's not only that the the dominant regime has to feel confident about its electoral chances. It also has to feel confident that by conceding democracy, the country will stay stable. Mm. So we call it victory confidence and also stability confidence. Mm. And interestingly, stability confidence is is just as important as victory confidence. I mean, we've we have interviewed. Um, dictatorships mm. um, and we have gotten inside the heads of mm. existing um, dictatorships and one of the things that comes out all the time is that yeah we're not we're, we don't have any worries that we won't win we're just worried that if we were to concede democratization the country would fall apart mm. we're holding this country together um, and whether that's empirically true or not that's what they think yeah right? sure and so again, the point is that if you if you if you if you find that in the wake of democratic transition, just tremendous instability, mm. um, enduring economic shocks, institutional discontinuity, revenge politics, yeah. you know all these sorts of things, uh, the radicalization of parties as opposed to the mm. moderation mm. of parties, which we you know the radicalization of parties we see in, in a lot of the cases of the Arab Spring and so on, and we're increasingly mm. seeing it in Latin America. That's where you see democratic backsliding. But in the cases that we highlight in our book, places like Taiwan, Korea, and mm. Japan, you don't see radicalization of parties. In fact, you see them moving more and more to the center. They're becoming more and more moderate and becoming forces for stabilization rather than um, democratic backsliding. Mm. They're, not, they're not spoilers. One thing that might also be relevant in helping us to understand democratic backslide is not only to recognize domestic threats, but also internationally what everyone else is doing yeah so for example if you're an authoritarian regime or you know middling and you see all your neighbors being super super authoritarian and getting away with it right. and there's no international condemnation in the wake right. of the u.s retreats for example yeah. so you see everyone else being authoritarian and being fine you realize there's no negative penalty yeah. where yeah yeah so that's right so when you look at cases like taiwan korea obviously japan I mean, the United States plays a huge role, right? right. So and I, Indonesia, and uh, Indonesia, when, well, yeah. In so 97. either as a patron, or um, in the case of Korea and Taiwan, basically in the 1980s, saying to these regimes, 
you're thugs. Like we yeah. don't, you know, we're not, mm-hmm. we're not into you anymore. And so they lose their patron and it's sort of like, okay, we've, we've, we need to, that, that support is gone. Mm-hmm. We need to, we need to make some political changes, which of course then re-wins, if you will, regains uh, American support, or at least what we call superpower patronage. Um, so you see that certainly happening in contemporary times, but also I also, I, I just think that we're in a, a, a moment where, I mean, Larry Diamond and others have talked about this, you know, this era of democratic recession, mm-hmm. right? And so the kind of normative, the normative investment we have in democracy um, has waned, um, and the, frankly, the lackluster performance of democracy in either fulfilling democratic yeah. principles and rights or in managing the economy. You know, the performance has been rather poor, right? So one of the really compelling narratives in China right now is this notion that um, the China model, an authoritarian-led economic development strategy, is really the best way to move forward. And, and you know, when you look at the evidence, like an economy that's growing at 6% a year, you have a regime that is not only rhetorically, but actually investing in alternative energies. Mm. You have an authoritarian regime that's increasingly taking up, uh, taking on a leadership role in the global community, filling some of the void left by mm. American retreat, and, and talking about all the things that we do worry about, like climate change mm-hmm. and so on. Um, you know, it's a compelling, it's a compelling narrative, and so you can understand then why uh, illiberal democracies or hybrid regimes or authoritarian regimes say, you know, the China model is not only a compelling one for their own domestic mm. purposes, but it seems anyway, one can make the argument, an increasingly compelling one for the rest of the world, right? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I have very deep reservations about sure. that, obviously. Very deep reservations, not only normatively, but also, I think, just in practice. Mm. I think there's a lot of smoke and mirrors mm-hmm. here. But on a very shallow level, uh, in a very superficial read, authoritarianism equals development. Mm-hmm. It's a very compelling narrative. And so that's happening while we're seeing the kind of luster and sheen um, associated with democracy mm. becoming, you know. So I think maybe this change in international environment, both what people can get away with and what people think it will cause development, maybe might lead us to be cautious about inferring from what happened with the Asian developmental states in the 1980s and 90s. I mean, then when you right. had strong economic growth, you think, right, I concede, I can do the right thing. Right. You right. know, the, I can do the right thing in inverted commas. Sorry, everyone listening can see my inverted right, commas. Right. I, I can do the right thing and I can still win because of all this economic growth. Now, even if you have that economic growth, mm-hmm. doing the right thing doesn't necessarily yeah. mean... It's, I mean, I would still argue it's incentive compatible because unless you think, um, and you know, I say this to my colleagues in China all the time, unless you believe that something can last forever, it will end. And it will either end well for you or not well for you. Mm. And so it seems to me anyway that even as we see a democratic recession, as Larry Diamond would call it, around the world, if you're thinking about the interests of the party or the organization or the regime, mm-hmm. um, unless you believe it will last forever, it's still better to concede when you're strong than to concede when you're weak. Because if you concede when you're weak, 
you're done. Yeah, right, right. right. And and it could be Soviet really Union. disastrous, yeah, yeah. right? So so unless you truly believe it can last forever and you and you recognize that you're going to have to make a concession at some time, you have a choice. You concede when you're strong and popular and legitimate uh, and where you have the institutional horses to actually introduce real democratic institutions. Or you concede when you're weak and you run the risk of punishment. Um, you certainly run the risk of political obsolescence um, and run the risk of, uh, you know, a, a very negative legacy on, on you and the regime. So, you know, I mean, that's that's the bottom line, right? Mm. It's sort of you, you put that to to authoritarian leaders and, and I hope that it just gives them a moment's pause to think, OK, yeah, we've seen historically mm. that this has worked. Um, it makes logical sense. Mm. So hopefully the logic will compel more authoritarian regimes to concede democracy. You know, uh, you know what you're making me think mm. about parallels with gender and mm. how patriarchal regimes may be reluctant to allow, for example, gender quotas because mm. they think they can continue as normal without any changes. Right, right. Whereas some introduce gender quotas because they think that will enhance their legitimacy. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And and hopefully the net effect of all of that is that you have a more equitable society. Right. And, you know, and. and and that's the thing, is that people will say, well, aren't you just an apologist for, like, an authoritarian KMT regime in Taiwan? It's like, no, we're not No, I mean, we're not saying at all that KMT should be celebrated as mm. being these, you know, these enlightened, you know, mm. enlightened Democrats. Mm. Um, their motivation was to retain power, but there's no denying that Taiwan today is a democracy. There's no denying that Korea today is a democracy. Mm. I mean, we've seen some really, you know, really important um, changes take place in both of these societies. I mean, Taiwan and Korea universalized medical insurance yeah. when the whole world was retrenching. I mean, Taiwan is believed to be, will be the first Asian state to legalize same-sex marriage and, you know, and it has been a champion of gender equality uh, for decades mm. now in the Asia region. So, you know, they are inclusive democracies. Mm. Um, there's no denying that. and and. But the, the path that got them there uh, started at a decision to concede democracy, not to concede defeat on the part of the KMT, but for the KMT to continue winning. So, you know, as a person like myself who would very much prefer to live in a democracy than an undemocracy, I'd very much prefer to live in Taiwan than under a dictatorship, or a Korea, or a Japan, or an Indonesia. Conceding to thrive. Thank you very much, Joseph. Thank, Thank you. you.